Future of Finance podcast, where finance finds its future. Hello, everybody. Welcome to our webinar on the most innovative banks in the United Kingdom are not who you think they are. I'm Dominic Hobson, co-founder of Future of Finance, and I'm delighted to moderate our discussion today. Now, the problem we're going to address is not a new one. In 1931, a government inquiry into finance and industry led by a Scottish lawyer, Hugh Macmillan, identified a funding gap for small and medium-sized industrial enterprises. It became known as the Macmillan Gap. Ninety years later, that gap is still there. In its report of March last year, Open Data for SME Finance, the Bank of England identified a £22 billion funding gap for SMEs. That same report says all the net growth in lending to SMEs since 2017 has come from peer-to-peer lending platforms and smaller banks. We now have more banks than any time in the last 100 years. And since Metro Bank became the first new challenger bank in 2010, the Bank of England has licensed another 19. We've had a veritable blizzard of new banking apps aimed at creaming off the revenues of the big incumbent banks. Yet those big incumbent banks still account for more than half of all lending to SMEs, Smaller banks were a third of it, and non-bank lenders and peer-to-peer platforms are just one-sixth. And almost every SME wanting to borrow money goes to just one lender, their existing bank. Most don't even bother to do that. They simply elect to grow more slowly or not to grow at all. All of which suggests that the market for SME lending is not working very well at all, even 90 years after Hugh Macmillan first identified it. Now, to help us work out how to make it work better, I'm joined by the leaders of two startup banks aiming to specialize, among other things, in SME lending, the CEO of an online loan platform, and two independent experts familiar with public policy in this area. Rod Ashley is CEO at Olba, a new bank whose initial focus is the provision of lending and savings products to SMEs using a combination of digital technology and relationship managers. Ken Bishop is director of the All-Party Parliamentary Group on Fair Banking and Finance in Northern Ireland. Tony Greenham is Executive Director of Southwest Mutual, a startup regional mutual bank with a social impact mission, focusing on SMEs and residents of Cornwall, Devon, Somerset and Dorset. In previous roles at the Royal Society of Arts and the New Economics Foundation, he authored a number of reports and books on far-reaching financial reform. Katrin Herling is a CEO and co-founder at the Funding Exchange, a technology provider and platform which aims to use data to digitize the origination of loans to SMEs and the accompanying credit checks sufficiently enough to offer quotations inside four minutes and funds within 10 minutes. Professor Charles Munn is the chairman of the Ethics Committee at the International Association for Sustainable Economy, a former chief executive of the Chartered Institute of Bankers in Scotland and author of both a book on the ethics of banking and a book on the history of banking. As always, in addition to our panelists, we do have you, our audience. We want your questions, we want your comments, so do please send them, keep sending them throughout the discussion using the Q&A functionality at the bottom of the screen. We will not be saving them up to the end, but answer them as we go along. So you'll be, if you choose to be, an integral part of this discussion right from the off. Talking of the off, I'd like to begin by asking about that Macmillan gap. As I said, the Bank of England says it's 22 billion pounds wide. Question is, is this a market failure, perhaps something in the structure of UK banking, or is the market telling us something about the nature of SME risk? Perhaps, for example, that we need a bond market for SMEs and not a banking market to cover that mismatch. Now, Charles, you're the historian among us. Um, You're not, uh, you won't, won't remember Hugh Macmillan. He died in 1952, but the problem he identified 90 years ago still exists. 
What is it telling us? Is this a market failure or are we failing to listen to the message from the market? Well, it's hard to know the answer to that because Macmillan didn't identify the answer to it. And that, that thing that he identified actually went back a long way right into the, back into the 19th century that, that banks have access to the finance that they needed. But most of the historical research from that period in England and in Scotland shows that that was indeed not the case, you know, that, that you know, customers were not being turned away. And when in Macmillan's time in the 1930s, there was a lot of talk about the Macmillan gap. But the way the report is written is quite interesting. Um, the, the exact wording is, it has been represented to us that it, this gap exists. But um, it was as if the Macmillan committee were a little sceptical of, of, of this view, even at that time. And of course, the bank's attitude to that was quite simply that, that they lent freely in practice. And I, I think to a large extent, that's still the answer we get from the established banks to, to this perceived gap. Now, Rod, you're, you're, you, you've identified this as uh, an opportunity. Um, you don't need to share with us your, your views on whether the Macmillan Gap existed or not 90 years ago, but clearly the Bank of England has said there is a problem um, here today. What makes you confident that you can make a success of bridging that gap today? I think part of that is really uh, on, on previous experience um, and the way we've tried to approach this uh, problem before. We started the market research very strongly for, for, for the new bank. We were told there was this gap there um, and SMEs couldn't access finance. But when we actually started to drill down on that ourselves, we actually find the picture was a bit more nuanced than that. Um, most of the SMEs that we were discussing with were actually saying to us, actually, yeah, I probably can access finance. I can probably get it, as, as Charles was saying. However, um, actual fact, it takes too long to actually uh, be bothered with that. So in actual fact, I don't bother taking it. I just exist on, on my existing uh, basis. Don't, don't grow. Um, or in actual fact, um, the decision-making process takes place too far away from me by people who don't actually really understand the business that I'm, that I'm trying to get into. So to me, that's the kind of two areas that nuance that, that we were certainly trying to approach um, with, a, with a kind of more local approach in, in, into this. In, in that, to me, banking in that nature for SMEs and indeed for corporates as well is always really uh, a people business. Um, SMEs want to be talking about people they want people to talk to and so therefore part of the solution to the gap is to provide individuals on a and again I use the word local but that that is as undefined as to how local is local could be the case um, in, in order to deliver in, in, into the banking space and I think then you start to see the gap in a slightly different position because it comes perhaps more of an SME decision as to whether they feel there's a gap there or whether there is actually one there. Now, you, you um, uh, Captain, you'll have heard uh, Rod say that the decisions take too long. Tony, you will have heard uh, uh, what Rod was saying there about the decisions being taken too far away. Now, you've both got different solutions to that, that problem. Anyway, Tony, you're, you're, you've adopted a, a regional model. Captain, you're aiming to offer finance within 10 minutes. So um, perhaps you go first, um, Captain, and, and tell us what you think is the origin of this 22 billion 
gap? Is it a, is it a mirage, as, as Rod has kind of indicated, or is it uh, a real problem? Yeah, no, thank you for the question. Um, it's, um, it's an interesting question to ask, and I think it almost comes down the differences in views on how we define SME lending. Um, SME lending actually is encompassing usually everything from the tiniest startups uh, and sole traders up to businesses that are trading 25 million pounds, employ 50 or 100 people and trade internationally. And so you can imagine if you um, amalgamate these types of differences in profiles into one segment, it's quite difficult to conclude actually what the challenge is. What we have found is, um, particularly at the lower end, where you're almost looking at consumer finance, some of the um, million plus sole traders that are operating in this space, more than half a million businesses that have um, been formed over the last 12 to 18 months. In that space where you're very close to the consumer world in terms of the sophistication of the the buyer of products, the understanding of solutions and the, the needs actually is very akin to consumer world as well. There, one of the biggest challenges is the cost of unlocking finance. And um, given how difficult it is to, act, to assess a business for its creditworthiness, often what's preventing businesses in this micro segment to access finance is actually the prohibitive cost of of making that credit assessment and managing that credit assessment um, during the lifetime of the loan. And I think there, for me, the biggest barrier really is around how do you generate um, a, an opportunity that reduces, or how do you deliver an opportunity that reduces the costs of originating credit into the sector so that you can reach these more marginal companies. If you then couple this with actually banks being often required, not often being required to hold capital against their risk exposure, and you see very, very high risk exposure in these um, in these more marginal segments, it becomes very, very difficult to serve for banks. And I, I would therefore believe that one of the biggest gaps um, that we see is really at this lower end of the economy, where you have. Um, up to 3 million businesses overall that have turnover of less than 200,000 mm. pounds uh, and are, are really struggling to access credit. If you look at the businesses that are in continental Europe, in my home country, like Germany, would be driving growth, which is the mid-sized segment, the mid-tier in Germany, the Mittelstand. The UK hasn't actually managed to grow as many of these as we would like. Uh, they are fuel of, of innovation, they're fuel of, of international exports, areas where the UK hasn't done as well in, in terms of international comparisons. And I think here there's a slightly different gap that actually exists, um, where I think some of the, the, the challenges of not growing enough businesses into this mid-sized tier is, um, is, is, is much more complex than just access to finance. It is actually this mid-sized tier that traditionally hasn't been particularly well supported by banks, but they have more complex financing needs than what we see at the, at the lower, at the micro end, that's much more akin to, to the consumer space. In this space, we've seen challenger banks, and you named Metro and others, actually come in and develop sophisticated solutions, whether it's a more recently um, number of asset finance providers and others um, that are coming into the space, 
and really trying to close the gap that exists because the banks have been not flexible enough in terms of, of stretching down into this space. So I do think the gaps exist. I think the reason the gaps exist uh, are very, very different depending on what, what segment of the population of businesses, small businesses you're actually looking at. Thanks, Catherine. Now, I'll tell you, you heard um, Rod say that the decisions are taken too far away. You've just heard Catherine say that one of the curiosities of, of the British economy is, is the lack of these middle strand, these middle-sized companies, but we also have a lack of, of middle-sized banks. You know, the structure of the banking industry by comparison with Germany or indeed France uh, is um, is probably one of the factors which which you know shaped our, our economy as it is as it is today. Now you're you're looking to start up a bank which is has a regional focus. Uh, it's looking to make a social impact, and it's focused on SMEs and, and residents of those of those areas. What led you to conclude that was what was needed? Well, much of the analysis that others have mentioned. Uh, I mean, I, I agree with the with Rod that it's a nuanced picture about SME finance. Um, and uh, as Katrine also pointed out, uh, the real problems are down the smaller end. So we prefer to think of SEMs, self-employed and micro, as being a separate category from SMEs, small and medium-sized. And medium-sized businesses are now pretty well served, mostly ac across the UK, I would say. But as you go down, um, and, and of course, the reason for that is, well, probably twofold broadly, the transaction costs and therefore the prof profitability of smaller deals is lower. So banks tend to want to do the bigger deals and that's sort of natural, particularly if you're a shareholder owned and your only goal really is to maximize shareholder value, you're naturally going to go there. Um, but I think the other reason, which is quite important is the um, need to gather soft information, which requires people on the ground that not just can understand the business, but understand the context, i.e. understand the regional economy and, or, and demographics and society and all, all sorts of local knowledge. Um, uh, now, increasingly, hard data gets better and we have big data and we have AI and we have machine learning a bit and we have open banking. And you know, in many ways, these things should help. But I think we're, we're a long way off a world where um, you won't ultimately benefit from having a, an experienced banker on the ground to assess credit and we'll be able to bring in a wider range of data which can be collected and understood and processed locally and that will help close um, part of that Macmillan gap and as you rightly say you know why am I so confident about this well because most other countries in the world have these types of banks they outperform an SME lending for precisely this reason there's a lot of um, academic study, both theory backed up by empirical evidence that the, the credit decision needs to be taken closer, and I mean physically closer, to those markets in order to make more of those positive decisions. So, uh, I mean, that's not the only reason for, for, our, for the structure of our proposition, but certainly it's a reason why we think that there is good, sound, profitable lending to be done in the southwest of England, which isn't getting done, and the way to get that done is to have a different model, one being that's mutual uh, regional specialist and where, you know, we can gather that soft information and have a relationship banking model. Although, you know, like Albers, or, yeah, the way to make that commercially viable is you've got to be ferociously efficient on processing everything automatically where you can and then focus your human effort on gaps. So that's the model we're trying to, and we're not the only one. I mean, the other challenger banks have you know, unsurprisingly come to the same view that if you can combine the best of modern fintech with the best, if you like, of old fashioned relationship banking, then, then there is money to be made. I'm going to ask Ken in a minute for a, a public policy perspective on, on what's happening. Before I let you go, Tony, 
that empirical evidence you referred to, is there empirical evidence from here or, or other countries that local banks, regional banks, maintain lending facilities longer through economic downturns in a more sustained way because they understand the nature of the local credit risk? Do we um, know that? Yeah, well, I, I have to say I haven't, I haven't done this as a research director for some years, so I'm a little bit out of date, but, um, but yes, but of course the evidence isn't, isn't in the UK because you've got nothing to analyze in the UK, at least until very recently. So it tends to be from the US or from Germany, markets have already mentioned. Uh, but yeah, there is plenty of evidence. I mean, there are other macroeconomic benefits, by the way, from a more diverse um, uh, banking system, which includes local, local banks, um, which, uh, which we might touch on, but, uh, and there's lots of evidence to back that up as well. You mean it reduces the amplitude of the credit cycle? Well, yes, that's right. Ken, um, uh, perhaps this is an unfair question for you, but, but is, uh, 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 is, is there a, a, a perception among parliamentary groups that, that this Macmillan gap exists and that, that it needs to change? We've obviously seen a change in public policy and encouragement of more banks since the great financial crisis. The question I have for you, which I'm not sure you can answer, is whether there's any discussion of creating a corporate bond market for SMEs. I couldn't really ask the bankers this question because they want to lend money by different means, but is that is that a live issue or not? Yeah, very interesting question. Um, what I say, first of all, is that I do believe that there is an element of a distinct identity in the regions, and certainly that's reflected in discussions I've heard been part of in the parliamentarians around about, let's face it, we are in a situation of the transition towards post-COVID economic recovery. There is a lot of talk about well, where the stimulus may come from. How do we support our SMEs? And maybe not to jump ahead of conversation here, but you know, SMEs play an important part of that recovery. They're the lifeblood, they're the arteries of our business culture in the UK and certainly here in Northern Ireland. I think that we're from the policy perspective is that we are looking to try to get a, a more of a detailed picture of need. I don't think a one-size-fits-all solution in banking and finances is necessarily where we need to go. I think we need to understand, for example, pick up Katrina's point about this of the, the different spectrum of SMEs. In Northern Ireland, we've got the fastest uh, or the highest rate of startups to 100 million pounds, sorry, 100, sorry, a million pound turnover. After that, it tapers off. I mean, we've got a gap, sort of two to three million in the marketplace for, for banks and different fundings around that. I'd ask to your question, do we look at alternatives? I think it's always healthy to do that. I was involved uh, a number of years ago looking at the bond market, looking at uh, you know, IPOs, looking at alternative mechanisms for SMEs. Look, Northern Ireland, I think we've been successful. We've got maybe seven or eight IPOs by successful companies. But I think more conversation needs to happen around this mid-space, as you were, you're talking about, Dominic, because I believe from a policy point of view, we need to have an understanding of not only the, the big picture economics about trying to stimulate our recovery, but also we need to be conscious of the behaviour and the gaps where they exist on a regional basis. So a bit of a political answer, if I said, it's a bit of both, Dominic. 
um, if you're exposed to politicians, you're liable to make political comments, I guess. But <laughs> thank you again. Uh, um, I'm glad you brought up the question of, of, of the impact of the pandemic. And, and Katrin, perhaps I can come to you on this thought, which is that we obviously had these government support schemes, uh, the C-bills and the, and, and the BBLs. Uh, now, one of the criticisms we see is that has distorted the market for, for lending to SMEs. A further criticism has been that these um, these allowances have, have propped up businesses which were non-eligible, but at the same time have not been available to, to businesses which are much more viable. What does that, if those, first, are those criticisms true? Secondly, if they are, what does it actually tell us about the performance of the very large banks? The large banks, remember, account for like 85% of SME debt. What does it tell us about their performance in this pandemic, Katrin? Mm. Yeah. Um... It's again, it's a very good question, Dominic, and um, I'll start at the very end. I don't think that the distribution of the government schemes tells us anything about the bank's performance um, beyond operationally being able to put money out into the market. I think it does tell us about HMT's understanding of SME lending or lack thereof. Um, the government schemes were designed, and I think they have done a lot of good in terms of removing the risk of immediate failure of businesses at the beginning of the crisis. And they were highly effective when they were rolled out uh, in terms of the amount of money that was being made available, particularly to the most um, vulnerable businesses that were running out of cash and were almost inevitably going to fold without some injection of cash from the government. So the immediate stemming of a flow of bankruptcies is highly successful. And I would absolutely credit HMT and BBB with um, the right intervention at the right time. I think the, the issue that we ran into and that we've seen because as a, as a mediation platform, we see um, the profile of demand coming through and the, the availability of supply from the market overall. The issue really has been that um, this program then, after being initially a good answer, um, actually what it has done, it has dulled the pain for many businesses that are probably not going to be viable. And, um, where it has dulled this pain, we've seen a reduction in bankruptcies of failed businesses by 25% last year. So clearly, it has kept businesses alive that under normal circumstances would have failed. Um, it therefore hasn't really allowed for the adjustments that we would like to see in the economy, that resources are being allocated uh, effectively. But more importantly, what we have seen is that those who've actually done well, who've been agile, who've adjusted their business models, who have gone out and actually grown their business, that these were the businesses that last year were struggling to access any funding. This is um, not, the banks did not stop lending. The banks did continue to lend. We, we do get bank referrals from all of the large banks. So we can see whether they're changing their risk appetite or not. And in fact, these banks did continue to support businesses that were growing and hence the referrals from the banks actually weren't um, necessarily out of line of what we would expect. However, the broader economy that has provided in the micro sector, probably about 50% of all finance, micro sectors, businesses with, um, in my definition, less than half a million pounds turnover, um, those businesses that had provided market-based finance were um, absolutely undermined by Beeble specifically, where 2.5% APR 
is just not something a market-based lender that typically charges um, 10, 15, in some cases, given the risk profile of businesses they lend to, 25, 30% APR. So with 2, 2.5% um, Beebles in the market, those market-based products came off. But because Beebles was actually restricted to companies that were impacted negatively by the crisis, it is that segment of the population that was not impacted, that was growing, that was doing well, that's actually been starved of, um, of the ability to take finance uh, in the way that we would like to support them. Um, this has become more dramatic this month with uh, Beebles and Siebels having been removed from market and really the air has gone out of those schemes. We've seen how very little flow has been generated through those schemes. But most of the non-bank lenders haven't yet even been accredited for RLS, nor have some of the largest non-bank lenders actually brought back um, market-based lending. So we're, we're currently a little bit in the eye of the storm where um, we're coming out of lockdown, we're opening up again. Government has stepped back from Beebles and Siebels, I think it was absolutely necessary to do this, but hasn't actually, once again, hasn't looked at the non-bank finance lenders in providing processes and operational support for them um, to be able to continue to provide finance to the businesses that they typically support, which are outside of typically bank demand uh, or bank appetite. And thereby we're once again creating this, this huge vacuum in, in funding being required by businesses that are now opening up again, um, huge jump in asset finance requests that we're seeing but actually the policy and the execution of the policy is undermining the access to finance as well as the access to market-based um, funding solutions. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Katrin. Um, that's quite a sweeping indictment for propping up zombie companies, denying credit to the companies that need it to grow. It's a, it's a highly distorted market. I'd be very interested to know what, uh, what Tony and Rod think about that and indeed what, what Ken thinks about it from a public policy perspective. But before we Hear from them, perhaps Charles. You you have a an independent perspective on what on what Katrin has has been saying. Have, is part of the price we paid for the pandemic a totally distorted uh, SME lending market because market based loans have been, if you like, driven from the field? I think that's probably right. I, I see no reason to think otherwise, and it it's also been the case that history that whenever something as uh, unusual has happened in the market um, then there's some distortion because the market has to, to, to react to that and, and deal with it. But I think also at the same time there are structural things going on uh, that, that could have an impact upon this. For, for example, a lot of the new businesses being created would be service companies and, and therefore Lend, I'm talking about with my old banker's hat on here, but lending to a service company, much harder than lending to a company that actually has a lot of physical assets, because where's the security? It, it just is a, is, is a complete challenge. And of course, with a crisis, with a pandemic going on at the same time, that certainly has not made the situation any easier. Thanks, um, Charles. Uh, uh, Rod, could I, could, could I get your, your perspective on what... Um, on what Katrin said, it has what's happened in the pandemic, these extraordinary measures have been taken, actually made life more difficult for you as you as you look forward to getting your your loan book underway? Uh, yeah, and a couple, I think, of observations just for me. And the first of all, uh, generally speaking, 
uh, supportive very much of, of what uh, Catherine was saying there in, in her outlook. Um, our take on it as a new bank about to become to the market is that um, those um, difficulties that you outlined there, Catherine, actually are creating a bigger opportunity for a new challenger bank to arrive on the scene uh, than actually potentially was the case prior to the pandemic starting. Again, I think our um, market research on the big banks is exactly that. They were under pressure to deliver uh, and support uh, throughout this crisis, as opposed to the, the GFC, which, which you know they were um, the cause of, shall we say. So they needed to be innovative. They needed to be there. They needed to be helpful. They were. They delivered billions of these loans out um, into the economy. And as you correctly point out, I, I agree, one of the things that, that they didn't then are not able to do is they have no bandwidth left to support the existing businesses who are solid, dependable, reliable, who, who are it's still trading onwards um, in the same way that they were before. And that um, contributes back potentially to the gap we were referring to, I think, in the previous uh, question. Um, in my view, uh, I think it potentially was the same as yours. The, the initial uh, support was extremely welcome. It, it was required. It, it was really helpful. The longer and longer then it goes on, we're just pushing a problem further down the line. Um, and I, I'm a little bit of the view that, you know, SME, by their very nature, I believe anyway, are robust, resilient, uh, extremely innovative because they need to be in order to establish and survive in their own markets. And to a certain extent, actually, they could have been supported almost better by telling them what the boundaries were, where the risks were, and saying, actually, within these boundaries, this is how you now have to adapt and run your business. And I think some of the most successful businesses throughout the pandemic are the ones actually that have been allowed uh, to, to do that. Uh, and they've come through in some of the sectors, I think, that have been the most hard hit. In some ways, there's actually some of the most uh, innovation. Uh, and if I'm, if I may, Dominic, uh, just raise one further uh, comparison, which may or may not be um, quite the same here. I think we spoke earlier about um, intervention, and I think we have now regulators who are much more keen to intervene in all the markets. If, if we just, just slightly to the side of the SME market, if we look at the role the Financial Conduct Authority played very quickly within the mortgage market, um, it was to step in and say, um, you know, everybody will be allowed a payment holiday by right. It has to be there. You know, quite strong market interventions, appropriate in the circumstances and everything, but very much there. And I think now as we're coming to the end of it, we're seeing actually uh, that a lot of the uh, smaller local um, deliverers of the service, and in that case, really through the building society uh, movement there, have had that ability and agility to be able to deal with that work with the customers really closely and are obtaining you know high customer value results um, as a result of how they've managed to cope uh, through the through the pandemic coming back as most of my comments ultimately come back to that a uh, local smaller more adaptive uh, requirement for financial services which is lacking in in the UK and we've highlighted in, in two or three of our other responses thanks Rod Tony, I'd, I'd like to pick up something which, which Charles said about how much more difficult it is to lend to SMEs which are in service businesses. This, this is a growing problem. In fact, the Bank of England paper alludes to this, that digital companies in particular are kind of asset light and banks are used to lending against uh, physical assets. Now, you, you brought up the question of, of data and getting the data you need to make sensible 
credit judgments, the data you need to make sensible judgments of the quality of the management of the company, um, getting at management accounts, getting at audited accounts, getting at all sorts of other forms of data which would be useful to you making a judgment from insurers and utilities and I don't know, from the DBLA and the passport office, uh, satellite images, also there's a kind of en endless quantity of, uh, of data. Um, if, we, if we just put the, the pandemic to one side, uh, do you think that in your, at Southwest Mutual, you're gonna be making credit judgments and loan decisions on the basis much more of data than on the quality of the collateral which a business can put up? Well, we certainly think that we would have um, a, we would better get, gather a greater insight into lending against future cash flows because you know we can assess quality of management, the business prospects, particularly in the context of local markets that we know very well. But you know it has to be said that there's a reason why banks want to take collateral against the loan because it just lowers the capital requirement and the cost of delivering a loan. It, it, it's, it's just it, you know going back to your original um, question about the Macmillan gap, and part of that gap arises because. Smaller businesses want debt when actually what they need is equity. And, and the other thing that's constantly always sort of pointed to as a gap is the business advice gap. So I guess I'm saying that there's a few different things would need to change to really address this problem. One of them, I think, you know, people like uh, Rod and myself are trying to solve, which is which is introducing more variety in, in lending models that, that can that can do more business. You know, but I think there's the perennial problem of making sure, I think Katrine actually mentioned this as well, that businesses are well prepared for taking debt finance. And part of the problem is C-bills and B-bills, particularly B-bills, is a lot of businesses have taken the money and haven't had to go through the normal rigor of figuring out how the hell they're going to pay it back. <laughs> yeah. And the banks are aware of this, but, you know, they were told to get the money out and they did. You know, they were quite effective in getting the money out and how much it comes back in, we remain to see. But, the, but to your point about... Um, Collateral, I think that the third thing that might need to happen, you mentioned it actually in a way with the idea of SME bonds. I think there's a certain amount of risk pooling that needs to happen um, nationally uh, in order to really um, sort of solve the SME, SME finance problem. I mean, the British Business Bank already has and its predecessors had these schemes. So providing enterprise finance guarantee, get, you know, guarantees in lieu of collateral. But I think maybe we need to look at more of those sorts of schemes that can share risk with retail banks that make you know and, and therefore pool them over the whole population because it's good for the country as a whole to make sure these businesses are financed but it doesn't work if each individual lender has to shoulder all the risk so that sounds like a banker just appealing for the government to cover all the risks but it, you know i think it's more of a partnership you know a, appreciation of where it's appropriate to pool risks nationally maybe pay a charge for that um, uh, as, and what can be borne locally uh, thanks, Tony. Ken, um, can you give us a, a, a sort of parliamentary perspective on this? You know, is there a clear understanding of the distortions which these various pandemic measures have, have imposed on the, on the market? You just heard Tony, for example, say that it's actually robbed a lot of small businesses of the kind of discipline they get from, uh, from being lent to, if you like. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah, 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 thanks, Dominic. And again, Tony, I think you have some very interesting points, and Cathedral had me some points too. I mean, if I can sort of talk about a couple of things. One is that we talked in a bit of our conversation about the gap in finance. One thing I think all politicians and parliaments are aware of is the spike. And why we mean by the spike is that potential you know, knock-on effect of some of those businesses which rightly so have been supported and helped through your know, a difficult time for everyone. 
But the questions about long-term viability and creditworthiness and cash flows, keying, et cetera, is very important in, in that. The other thing I think is that there's merging conversations about you know, the nature of, how do you say, is there a hierarchy, and I'm saying there is, of certain kind of businesses, the service sector, over manufacturing, over retail, over tourism, over hospitality? And I know that you know, when it comes to decisions banks are going to have to make is about, you know, not only the balance sheet, but also just really where is those reliable measures and uh, metrics come into play to support those businesses who are viable to move forward. And the final thing I'd like to just mention, and I think Tony touched upon this, is that there's emerging conversation that this is something which maybe the banks can't do by themselves in the sense of not sense of regulation. It's more to be with well, where does government, where do the parliaments, where do the regional assemblies play their part? There's talk about equity in some uh, situations. You know, can the government help look at guarantees or equity schemes in some of these you know, more mid-sized businesses? In addition to that there, I suppose we're in a position at the moment where we realize, unfortunately, that there's going to be businesses which are not going to survive potentially till after Christmas. We know that there's going to be spikes regionally around unemployment, all very worrying and concerning for the politician, but also for the economy. So the question is, what do we do to support those viable businesses or to encourage the growth? It has to be in the breadth or broadband and services and options that businesses are offered regarding lending and debt. But also we shouldn't throw out ideas of, you know, government supported bonds. For example, there's the new green um, treasury bond being discussed at the moment about maybe trying to stimulate you know, uh, sustainable SME businesses, for example, which is quite, 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 quite focused right through to rather than looking that of sons and daughters of C-bills or bounce-back loans, that there's some kind of introduction of an equity share scheme by government with to carry some of the risk with the banks. So I think it's all on the table. And I think it's a interesting time to be coming through this where we have opportunities for the challenger banks emerging thinking and practice to be you know, ruled out and sort of tested um, as an economy. So to answer your question quite quickly, Dominic, I think that there's room to uh, diversify. I think there's room for dialogue. Certainly it's in the mind of the politicians and the parties, how we have a sustainable future and economy. And that means no quick, simple solution, but it's a mixture of all that stuff. Thanks, Ken. Um, Katrin, I thought that um, what Ken was saying there about actually the gap might be an equity gap rather than a, than a debt cap, and it was, it was a point Tony was making, a lot of these SMEs are actually looking for the wrong sort of finance. They're looking for debt, and they should be looking for equity. And they're looking for debt for obvious reasons. They don't want to give their, their company away. Um, if you look at, at, at your, your, your native country in Germany, the, 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 the funding of these Mittelstand companies, what's the the proportions there between um, there's obviously a lot of family ownership, but is there what is the proportion between debt and equity there, or long-term bank loans? What's the what's the capital structure of a, the average middle stand? 
It's a very good question, Dominique. Um, so first of all, I think just before I answer the specific question in terms of comparison to Germany, um, I think again, if, if you pull apart the different segments in the economy, and I, I know um, there was some really good work done in some think tanks around um, debt versus equity as part of the response to the crisis. Um, and particularly whether Beeble Siebel's loan should be converted into equity. We have to remember that 98% of businesses, um, it's, it's your local pub, it's the tiny retail coffee shop on the, at the corner. These guys aren't businesses that actually can attract equity. They are not um, the type of businesses that somebody wants to invest equity in. Where in 98% of cases, I'm not talking about the, the, the type of business that actually can um, have institutional investors or uh, other investors who would inject equity. Um, you are in Germany. Actually, it's an interesting question that you're asking specifically. In Germany, the word for debt is the same word as guilt. So, if you are taking debt, you are guilty. <laughs> you have done something wrong. So, historically, debt levels in Germany are very low. Um, the access to finance in Germany is very, very different. Banks are trying to push money into, um, into businesses. So the rates you're paying for finance, for debt finance in Germany can be as low as 2% uh, APR. And that's a reflection of just having a massive overhang of deposits traditionally and, and just having to generate some type of return on, on uh, deposits that the banks are holding. So it's a, it's a very, very different environment in terms of the availability of access to debt. Um, it is much more a question of do people actually want to take debt? Um, there is an increasing, you're absolutely right, a lot of this is, is, is generated in Germany where families over generations are building up businesses. So these are often, um, UK has the average age of the businesses not the average, the average life expectancy of a business is four years, four years. If you only expect to live for four years as a business, the ability of an investor to make a better new is also massively reduced. I don't have the equivalent number for Germany, but certainly the Mittelstand is, is usually multiple generations um, that this business has been in, in a family. Um, so the the, um, and often not managed by those who are owning it. So separation between ownership and management, particularly in the Mittelstand, is significant. So you have professional management while you have family ownership. And, and these are models that just don't exist in the UK. So, so comparing the UK and the German market from a, from a debt finance perspective is almost impossible. Uh, equity investment in the Mittelstand is something that over the last 20 years has grown significantly. But um, equity was investment before um, 20 years ago was, was unheard of. But that certainly is something that is changing. Um, and partially because these businesses are so internationally connected that some of what they're doing is actually generating global IP that is hugely attractive to investors who are wanting to take this to other markets. So the investment thesis into a German business often isn't particularly necessarily related to the German market. It's actually related to the IP and the ability to access international markets. So again, it shows you a little bit of the difference between the environment you're operating in in, in Germany versus the UK, just very, very different markets. 
And as it happens, we're going to get um, um, two banks, which have a something of a German uh, a German model in the shape of of what Rod and um, Antonio are doing. So you know, Rod Alba is looking to to attract SMEs as investors as well as as as, as customers of the bank. And, and and you, Tony, have gone the whole hog, and you're actually going to be a mutual owned by your your customers. So um, perhaps you tell us a little bit about about how that will make operating the bank easier uh, in this environment, because your capital is perhaps more loyal to you, but you still have the same problem that banks do. You still have to make you know, the right credit judgments. You have to make sure your assets are yielding more than your, your cost of funding. And I guess net interest margin in this market in particular is extremely difficult to, to obtain with interest rates uh, you know, negative in, in, in certain markets now. Anyway, tell us what's the, how much difference is, is the, your ownership going to make, do you think, in your ability to satisfy SME-style borrowers? Well, a number of advantages to mutuality. Uh, mutuals are consistently uh, rated as more trustworthy by consumers. Um, the uh, customer loyalty you can generate through being you know, a part controller and owner of the business yourself, the opportunity to um, essentially use your customers much more as um, a feedback mechanism to give you, you know, good, good responses and, and feedback and so on on your products, be involved in, in uh, you know, in setting future directions. These are all sort of commercial advantages of mutuality, I think. Um, we also think that from a conduct point of view, it, it, you know, one of the problems in banking being one where there's a, a, an asymmetry of information between banks and, and their customers in financial services, which but simply means they can get away with mis-selling stuff to them until the regulators catch up with them. And you know, history has shown that that's been done on an industrial scale in this country. Um, how do you solve that? Well, you solve the conflict of interest between the owners, shareholders, being different from the customers. If the customers are the owners, you've, you've, you've eradicated that conflict of interest issue. So I think from a conduct point of view, there's a structural advantage to being a mutual. Now, mutual's not blemish free don't, don't get me wrong uh, so you know it, as with you know as with any model there can be bad and good versions of it um, however our big challenge which i think you're identifying is that you know the right time to start a mutual would have been about 100 years ago <laughs> uh, because um, regulation was almost non-existent and you could build up your reserves over time now you've got to hit the ground running as rob will know any any new challenge about one there you've got to hit the ground running fully formed fully capitalized fully all you know all the the same quality as a large bank actually that's not necessarily wrong but it does mean that combining the ability to attract and reward external capital which we will do we'll have to do is something which we're having to be innovative to get back to the title of the actually round table you know we are innovating around combining customer participation and control with external capital um, to start a new bank. And, and really, I, you know, there may well be no, no institution that's done that anywhere in the world recently because all the cooperative banks that exist elsewhere have been around for a long time. And the last building society to be formed, of course, in this country was 1981. Mm. So, uh, so this, is, this is a, a new uh, model that we are trying to create. Now, Rod, um, Tony's brought up that capital question a couple of times. You've been through this three-year mill to get approval from the Bank of England. How large an obstacle is it to, to getting going? And perhaps give us a a comment on 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 your idea of, of investors becoming customers and customers becoming investors as well. Yeah, so I, I think absolutely absolutely right. I mean, following the the last crisis, there was a lot of political pressure to get new banks in, and I think Tony mentioned there were nineteen new appointees, or maybe it was you, Dominic, in that period. 
Um, and the Bank of England then brought in, um, they made a more of a glide path, essentially, to try and make it easier to, to get new banks. And that's where we saw uh, a number of new ones, such as Metro, which we referenced earlier. But, but the challenges actually are really still very much there. As Tony said, you require to have basically your capital in place before you can actually start the bank. You can't really start small and build up as, as, as you used to be able to. Everything has to be in place on day one, um, it, as it would be for, for any of the, of the major banks. I think Alba's journey is a little bit um, slightly different uh, from uh, Tony's. And I think the, the uh, uniqueness of that actually stems from where Alba really uh, grew out from um, and I think I'll reference it here, but it might be interesting to let Charles say a, a little bit uh, following me because he is the expert on, on these matters. But Alba actually grew out of uh, the last remaining savings bank that was left in the UK. Um, and the legislation that governed it was um, Victorian, uh, early Victorian even, and, and really unsuitable for 21st century. So it, it wasn't actually even a mutual and, uh, in, in many, many ways. And the way we've kind of then morphed into the ALBA is that the initial uh, shareholders that we've managed to bring on board uh, have been uh, hand-selected to get to where we're looking for, uh, have bought in, if you like, to the vision and picture of the bank and that we would like to be around in a hundred years time, uh, you know, far longer than just the four years or, or average that, that was going to be there. It's a long-term venture, more patience around to the investors are and understanding that it's about supporting SME business over an extended period of time. Um, and with the right sort of investors, we should be able to build the right attitude to make sure we've got the right approach in a similar way uh, to mutual uh, ownership, but it is a but it's a different model having to have that piece in place. Thanks, Rod. Now, now Charles, uh, I, I'm picking up from from what Tony and uh, and Rod are saying that actually the regulatory environment in the UK. I'm sure Ken, you have some views on this as well. It, it's perhaps not as um, as congenial for, for starting up banks as you'd like, and, and perhaps particularly not as congenial for them for them growing and growing. I don't just mean in terms of growing their loan book and, and acquiring external capital. I mean, in terms of forming a regional networks, and maybe even national networks that seem to have been much easier to do 150 years ago than it is is now. Do you think that's a, a fair anxiety for us to have, Charles? I think so. A couple of the organisations I've researched in recent years, um, both really well established mutual organisations have struggled with the cost of regulation. Um, it has been a major factor for them and a challenging one. And, and you know, if, if you multiply that by a factor of how much I do not know, but it, it must be a lot for brand new organizations who need to be up there having ticked all the boxes and there are many boxes to be ticked. Um, how they actually do it uh, and, and hope to make any money, even in the, you know, relatively short space of time, I, I, I have every sympathy for them because I wouldn't care to be doing it myself. So Ken, how, how, how we have about, um, about less than, slightly less than 10 minutes, and I'd like to ask you all a last question on innovation. Before we do, Ken, perhaps give us a view on, on where you see um, regulation as being helpful or unhelpful and how clear the understanding is among the people who are determining policy. You've just heard Charles talk about the number of boxes that have to be ticked, so the cost of regulatory compliance, cost of anti-money laundering, KYC, 
CFT, sanction screening, all these things is significant. And on top of that, you've got uh, the cost of the 20, 25 million pounds of capital you need to start a bank. You did not need 150 years ago. How well understood is the, the disincentives posed by the regulatory system to starting a bank? How well is that understood in the right circles, Ken? Yeah, good point. And I think what I should say here is that I agree that there's a there's good regulation and there's bad regulation. Yeah. I think that obviously we have to ensure that the the, the consumer and the, the business is protected, that there's enough level of uh, control. And also if we look back to obviously what happened in uh, 2008 and nine with the bank crash and capitalization, we're much aware of what happens when the market is running a bit sort of thin on the buffer or the, the protection of capital held. At the same time, you know, there's emerging dialogue and conversation around the changing policy or regulation, you know, post-Brexit, for example, um, conversation around solvency two, uh, what levels uh, do the banks as well as the insurance sector, for example, have to maintain? Um, can some of that money be released back into the system, either to uh, encourage uh, you know, cheaper products or potentially to lend on to third parties or even to use to, to incentivize regional growth? So I think when we look at the, the broader picture of policy formation and the opportunity, one of the potential opportunities through, through Brexit as the UK starts to find its place in the, the broader international financial markets is that those, those very questions. Um, what is going to be the, the, the level of assurities and regulations to keep the system fair, to keep the system equitable? and to keep a system protected for those potentially most vulnerable for exploitation. At the same time, to give uh, companies and emerging challenger banks and other institutions the best opportunity to fill those emerging gaps or create new opportunities of financial products. So to answer your question, Dominic, I, I think that from the policy landscape, we know that there's a lot of discussion we notice of debate what happens next in the next five plus years in the markets with the UK and the City of London. We also know the discussion about well, what happens if there was a relaxation around uh, the need for capitalization or the levels need to be retained. Is that a good thing? Is that a bad thing? On your cynical day, you'd say, would well, that be that more money goes to the shareholder? What guarantees that any savings would be passed on to the consumer and the customer? So I, I think that the debate is a timely one. And I do agree that there's good regulation and there's bad regulation. However, I do think that when it comes to maybe some of the occasions where banks' historical behavior and others in the financial sector's behavior maybe sometimes needs to be a bit firmer, but sometimes there needs to be a bit of room for the market to, to grow and develop. Thank you, Ken. We have just a little under five minutes left, so I'll have to ask you all to be relatively brief, but I wouldn't want us to, to, to leave without asking one question about, about innovation. And my thought about this is, is twofold. One is the Open Banking Initiative uh, seems to have had pretty minimal impact on SME lending, if we judge that by the fact that most SMEs just go to their one house bank. Yet the Bank of England paper is arguing that open data would uh, enable SMEs to access more sources of funding more conveniently by these so-called portable credit files. Um, 
and that would in effect oblige incumbent lenders to, to hand over everything they know about a borrower um, to you as a, a Southwest Mutual or as, as Alba Bank. Um, Rod, you know, to, to an extent you and, and Tony are innovating, but do you think that what the bank is talking about here with, with open data would be helpful to you or is just something which um, seems a good idea but wouldn't have a material impact on your business? Very helpful, very helpful. And indeed a key plank actually, I think of taking things forward and allowing an open and expansion an ability to, for more uh, to enter into the market. The, the key thing, or uh, one of the key things anyway, that we touched on earlier, and I'll be very brief, I know we've only got a minute, uh, is um, who's the banking relationship with? Who does the SME bank with? Who does the day-to-day -day banking really? Um, and so it's much more difficult for the new incumbents who maybe don't do that for the customer to get in there and make a proper offering. The ability to look at the data on open data sources it eliminates um, that uh, cliff edge and gap between the two lenders, and we can play much more evenly um, on that field in that stage. So I think it's really important. Just a yes, no answer from you, Rod. Are you confident the big banks will play ball with this or not? They've been very reluctant. I think, I think they will, because I think, I think it will be backed up by further encouragement. Tony, will, will open data be helpful to, to Southwest Mutual as well? Well, of course. I mean, I think that, that, that somebody's banking transaction data is their own. I mean, this is the principle. So the bank should, of course, they should be able to take it wherever they want. And that should be facilitated by their bankers. And yes, that would be helpful. If that extended into some scenario where credit, credit information that we collected manually, as it were, into a file had to be taken, then that creates a massive moral hazard because you know, there's a cost to collecting that data and it should be proprietary. So, um, you know, I, I, but I mean, in terms of hard data of just these are all the banking transactions. Yes, should be easily portable. I think that I would just like to make one thing about the concept, the conceptual framework for that though, is that there's too too much of an obsession in this in this country to thinking that competition will fix everything. Mm. Ultimately, a lot of small businesses, like individuals, they don't want to shop around for their finance. They want a relationship with a with a a financial institution that they trust mm -hmm. will give them the products that suit them. They want a relationship like they do with their dentist and their doctor and their lawyer and their accountant. They don't want to shop around. Lots and lots of consumers behaviorally would be the same. So just adding more and more competition doesn't solve the consumer's problem. Catherine, open data is all about fostering competition. Um, <laughs> I'd be fascinated to know what you think about what Tony has just said, that actually not every SME wants competition, doesn't want to shop around. They want a proper banking, old-fashioned banking relationship. Oh, I absolutely agree. Sorry. I yep. absolutely agree. There's there's different profiles in the market. There's different funding needs also in the market. Uh, some of them are quite um, tactical funding needs where you need £25,000 by tomorrow because there's something you want to do. Uh, you probably will want to go for the easiest access to money. But if you're, you're much prefer, business owners want to have a personal relationship. There's no question in my mind that Tony is right. I think technology in, allows us and finance providers to remove the admin stuff that actually doesn't add to a relationship. Technology and data allows you to have a real eye-to-eye -eye discussion without having to ask for the third time for the bank statement or the cash flow analysis, because you've already done it. Can you compete on data, better data about a, a borrower? 
can you compete on better data on a borrower? Understanding as a result of reading the data and finding things in it, doing a better credit analysis. hundred percent, hundred percent. So we are seeing um, funding providers that are able to look at uh, real-time cash flow, uh, who are able to get comfortable around risk that others probably would not be able to uh, get comfortable on. Um, we see. It, it often isn't just about the data, it's also about how do you, how do you get comfortable around the management. So it's, it's not just the, the data, but um, certainly what data allows you to do is to understand where to spend your time. So we use data on understanding where you have interesting prospects and you should be doubling down your resources, your investment in partnerships, your investment in people versus where you actually have somebody who's made, misunderstood what, um, what funding might be available to them and you, you can still help them, but you wouldn't want to spend hours and hours digging into their financial information because you know from the outset that you won't be able to support them. Thanks, Catherine. Now we, we've run over time. So Charles, that's perhaps a last comment from you. It prompts the thought from me that maybe data is an alternative to collateral in SME lending. Do you think that's a possibility, Charles? Well, it, it can be to some extent, but uh, I, I do think that, uh, well, a number of years ago, I ran a seminar with some accountants who were quite surprised to learn that bankers in making lending decisions needed a bit more than last year's balance sheet uh, and final accounts. Um, but the other thought, final thought I have is that in the 1970s, the British Banks Association ran a television advert where consumers and business people kept their relationship manager in a cupboard in their living rooms or in their offices. And, and when they needed them, they, they opened the cupboard and out the banker came. And I'm sure that's what we need again. I like that story. Ken, perhaps you could, you could wave us out with some last observation. Do we have enough innovation in SME lending? I think, yes, we have a growing body of thought around innovation, but I think the core of innovation and data is trust. That really was brief. Thank you. Um, you win. You win the prize, the 2021 prize for briefest comment in a webinar so far this year. Thank you, Ken. Sadly, I think we must stop there. Uh, we've just run slightly over time. I'd like to thank our panelists: Rod Ashley of Olber, Ken Bishop uh, of the APG on Fair Business Banking, Tony Greenham from Southwest Mutual, Catherine Hurling of Funding Exchange, and Charles Munn from the IASE. And thank you also to our audience for your interest. <laughs>